Every academic paper, I've already gripped you, right? <laughs> All right. Every academic paper has a thesis statement, or at least one that's going to get a decent mark. Every political speech has an undergirding agenda to it. Every book and movie, every novel or story, work of fiction and movie is making a point, or at least the good ones do. Journalists report a summary of events. Sports, this is one of those times in the year where being a sports fan is so fun. The NHL playoffs, the NBA playoffs, and there are so many good series that you can't, you can't watch them all, and so you really rely on the highlights, which is what? Well, you're going to get the score, the final score, and just the really key moments of the game. Well, John the Gospel writer does the same. Steering all of these, right, academic papers, political speeches, movies, films, journalism, sports, Steering all of these is the big idea. And as the 20th chapter of John's gospel concludes, he shares his big idea. Now, in my Google research, I was reminded, as many of you wrapping up university have been diligently all over, a thesis statement focuses your ideas into one or two sentences. It should present the topic of your paper and also make a comment about your position in relation to the topic. Your thesis statement should tell your reader what the paper is about and also help guide your writing and keep your argument focused. Likewise, sometimes a more brief purpose statement is a statement, is a declarative sentence which summarizes the specific topic and goals of a document. Now, today, our practice is typically to make these statements right out of the gate, right? Some sort of catchy intro, as you have just witnessed. (laughs) Followed by a thesis statement, and then now into the body of work. But first century gospel writers like John are not bound by such constructs of, of the 21st century. And yet... Nonetheless, towards the end of his gospel, John makes it abundantly clear why he has constructed it the way he has and what the clear goal is that he has in mind. And I feel like this is a good time for us to get to that because this is the, 20, uh, wait, this is the 61st sermon in our Gospel of John sermon series. <laughs> Woo! Three to go after this. Home stretch, people. So I think it's a good time to summarize where we've been and remind ourselves what this is all about. So if you have a Bible, turn to John chapter 20. We're just going to look at the last two verses of John 20. And over the course of the next three weeks, we're going to tackle John 21. Here are the last two verses. They'll also be on the screen for you to see. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. Thesis statement. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So 
I'm going to take a little bit of a different approach than I usually do. We're just going to go a few words at a time through these two verses. A few words, focus on them. Next few words, focus on them until we're done. Okay? Here's the first few words. Now, Jesus did many other signs. Let's stop there. Signs. I, used, I lived in Calgary for a while, and I wanted to go see my friends who were in Kelowna. Now, I had driven from the Fraser Valley to Kelowna a few times. I knew the way. I didn't quite know how to get to Kelowna from Calgary. Believe it or not, children, this was before the days of Google Maps, navigation, snazzy things like that, and I'm not a paper map kind of guy, so I was like, well, the signage will be clear. So I arrive in Merritt, and, uh, <laughs> and I realize, wait, I've gone too far. And so I had to then go from Merritt over to Kelowna, because, well, being a Fraser Valley boy, I knew the way from Merritt. So needless to say, I missed that key turn at 97A. Uh, that was a really critical thing. Here's the thing about signs. They're important. They provide us with information and guide us to our desired destination, whether it be the right highway to take or whether it be, you know, family road trip or something. All right, guys, keep your eyes peeled for a restroom, or, you know, the next, next rest stop sign or a restaurant for a bite to eat or if you're on that long road trip, right, the, the sign at the side of the road says how many kilometers to your destination and it's a few hundred and then... It's a few hundred less, and right, you're just getting closer and closer, and you can count it down. But it's not just road signs. You walk into a building, like a hospital, and you need to look at the signage to see which wing, which area to go for, to visit which people in which areas and all that kind of thing. In the Bible, signs function as guides as well. They point to something beyond themselves. They're signs that direct us. In the Bible, signs direct us to spiritual truths, destinations we are meant to land at. Like in the Old Testament, signs most often involved God performing some sort of supernatural acts, sometimes through a human servant. Moses is a great example of that. In the book of Exodus in the Bible, signs in Exodus that God did authenticated Moses as God's messenger. These miraculous signs were happening, and they validated the ministry of Moses, what God had called him to do and what he had called him to say. And because people saw the signs, they listened up and often would recognize, oh, God is speaking through this man. The same is true of the prophets in the Old Testament. God used signs to authenticate his prophets who would speak God's message to the people, so that people would believe God's message. So there's this one really interesting, these are all over the place in, in the Old Testament. There's these, these signs and these, these, these things that God would get prophets to do, like I think it's like in Isaiah chapter 20 or 22, somewhere in there, God tells uh, Isaiah to take off his clothes and walk around naked for three years because that's going to be a sign to the people of, you know, some message. So, I mean, they're not always supernatural. Sometimes they're quite weird. I don't know why I'm always drawn to those really... There were so many choices to give you. I decided to talk about naked Isaiah. But needless to say, needless to say, uh, there were many, many signs, and these signs ultimately were to validate, authenticate the message of these servants of God. 
But unlike the signs of Moses and unlike the signs of the prophets, the signs Jesus performed didn't only authenticate a divine message from God, they authenticated Jesus himself as the divine message. Right out of the gate in John's gospel, he's doing this for us. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and we are meant to understand that Jesus himself is the Word. In John 1.14, John writes, the Word, that's Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us. See, with Jesus, these signs don't only point to a divine message, They point to Jesus as the divine message. Jesus is unique. That's why Jesus said things like John recorded in John 10, 37, when Jesus said, if I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works, the signs, what you're seeing me do supernaturally, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. These seven signs that John's gospel focuses on, there were many to choose from, we'll see. He chose seven. The seven signs are included so that readers of John's gospel would believe. It was John Calvin who said, It may seem absurd that faith is based on such miracles, like these miracles of Jesus, when it ought to be devoted exclusively to God's promises and word. But to that I reply, no other use is here assigned to miracles than to be aids and supports of faith. They're signs, they're signposts, they're pointing us to who is behind and who the signs and who it is authenticating. Miracles are called signs because they prompt people to look to where they point. And that, John makes apparently clear, is Jesus. Now, let's keep going. Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. Let's hang out there for a minute. The signs and many others were performed in public and in the presence of many witnesses. The disciples of Jesus witnessed all sorts of signs from Jesus. John has included these seven, which means there were so many others just left out. But what we're told is what, was given, what has been given to us in John's gospel is, su- is sufficient for obtaining life everlasting. If you're anything like me, you desire to know more details and have more questions answered. But while for curiosity's sake, we'd like to know more, for transformation's sake, we know enough. So when it comes to what John has chosen to record, listen, for curiosity's sake, yeah, we'd love to hear about all the others. But for transformation's sake, John has presented enough. That is to say that John's gospel is sufficient for us to believe in Jesus and to have life in him. And that's true of all of Scripture. This is referred to as the sufficiency of Scripture. It does not say everything we want the Bible to say, but it says what it says, and it says it sufficiently. In other words, it's not an exhaustive account of all things, the Bible, but it's a sufficient account of necessary things. Most notably, Jesus revealed to be the Son of God, that we would know that so that we could believe that, so our lives could be changed by that. A working definition of the sufficiency of Scripture is the sufficiency of Scripture means that the Bible contains all the words of God He intended His people his people to have at every stage in redemptive history. All the way along, Jesus, God gave all the words from himself that people needed to that point. 
and that the Bible now, the whole of Scripture as we have it, the Bible now contains everything we need God to tell us for salvation and for trusting and obeying Him. It's sufficient. Were there other things that could be written? Absolutely. Were there other miracles that weren't recorded? Absolutely. But there is with great intentionality enough recorded for us to come to the same conclusions. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which were not written in this book, but these are written. What's he referring to? Many other signs, but these are written. He's referring to the seven signs that he has written about in his gospel. And the way it's written, these are written, is in the perfect tense, which can be taken to mean that what he has written stands. It stands, meaning it wasn't just for the original readers of John's gospel, that this will be sufficient for you to believe. It means even now, 21st century, picking up John's gospel, it stands as, 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 as this, this opportunity for us to still come to the same conclusions about Jesus. I was getting stuck there. Wow, I got out of it. The signs in John's gospel all happened in the first half of the book. Let's just look back now. We're 61 sermons in. Let's just take a quick look back at John's gospel. The first half of, of John's gospel are, are really the, the, the testimony of the signs. And then chapters 13 through 20 are, are what are referred to as the farewell discourse. Time really speeds up from chapters 13 through 21. It's this very brief window of time where a lot is said, and it's the farewell discourse. Jesus is on his way to the cross, rises from the grave, and ascends. That all happens in short order. And then finally, chapter 21, we'll look at the next three weeks, is the epilogue. It's the afterword. It's the finale. But here John is talking about these are written referring to the signs that he recorded. So I want to just review those with you. It's a powerful picture John has painted for us about Jesus and who he is. The first sign John recorded was when Jesus, in, in John chapter 2, changed water into wine. Now that is a miracle. That's a great miracle. It's his first recorded miracle in this gospel. I would love to have just a taste of that wine, like just a drop of that wine or a glass of that wine. Um, but, but what's behind the changing water into wine? Like what's behind the miracle? It wasn't just, oh, that was helpful for the wedding guests. Like, it, like there's always more. There's always more. And what John is showing us is that Jesus is the Messiah. We're going to talk about that word Messiah more in a little bit. Jesus is the, is the Messiah who inaugurates the new covenant order. Jesus is the new and better wine. Like, the wedding guests were astounded. They make a fuss about it, and John records it, that they're in surprise because this isn't what normally you would do at a wedding feast. You would serve um, you would present the, the really expensive, the most delicious wine at the beginning of the wedding feast. And then as their, you know, you know the, 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 the palate is kind of, uh, you know, less refined, as you would say, later on, it's like, okay, bring on the cheaper wine. They just can't, it's not, they're not as, you know, on point at that, at that time. And so they were shocked, though, because Why? Because now we're into the latter stages of the feast and the wine has run out, but now new wine has come and it's even better than the old wine. Well, that's the point. Jesus comes at the time of the old covenant and is bringing a new covenant and it's better. 
it's more satisfying, it's more full, it's more robust. You can, it's really at the, it's very front, it's at the front. Healing of the official son was the second sign, second sign. Chapter 4, what we see happen here is that Jesus is the son of God who grants life by the word of his power. Amazing. Jesus is the word made flesh and with a word he heals a boy. The power of God manifest in the healing of this child. John chapter 5, a man who cannot walk. Jesus heals him. Just get up. Grab your mat. Be healed. Jesus is the Son of God who makes people spiritually whole. Are you broken? Jesus shows us. He can give us legs to walk. He can heal us. John chapter 6, we see Jesus feed the multitude, thousands of people, from a few loaves and fishes. And we see that Jesus is the bread of life who is sovereign over the gift of eternal life. He satisfies the bellies of these thousands, but the deeper meaning underneath is that Jesus can satisfy you completely now and forever. Then later in John chapter 6, he records Jesus walking on water. That's not normal right? What's he saying? Why is he recording it? What are we to learn about Jesus? Jesus is the Son of God who rules over the world he created. I mean, at one point, with the word of his power, what does he do? Tells waves, wind, sea, stop it. And right then, immediately, and then right, Jesus walking on the water, he has power over creation. We are to see him as no mere man. Then in chapter 9, we see that Jesus heals a man born blind, who had never seen. Jesus is the light of the world who gives sight to the spiritually blind. That's you and me. What we're to learn is that before Jesus gives us sight, we have not truly seen anything rightly. And he gives sight to the blind. Finally, in chapter 11, the great culmination of these signs is in the raising of Lazarus, a man who had died that Jesus dearly loved. He says, come on out, Lazarus. Come on out of there. Jesus is the Son of God who rules over death and gives life to the spiritually, not just injured, not just hurting, but the spiritually dead. And that's important for us to see. John is showing us this full enough for us to believe picture of who Jesus is, what he came to do. Let's move on. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. There's two interpretations on this, so that you may believe what that means. Here's the first interpretation, that the purpose of his writing was that, may, that people may believe. John has, in other words, an evangelistic aim. That people would put their faith in Jesus. That's his goal. He's writing it so people would place their faith in Jesus Christ. The second interpretation is, is that they would understand it as this. That you may continue to believe. Well, that would alter the rationale, the, the, the reason for writing, and therefore would be addressed to believers. Now, there's some validity to that because the faith of many Christians over the centuries have been nourished by John's gospel. 
So that's certainly a valid benefit of the gospel. We've been preaching for um, portions of four years from John's gospel, and our hope is that it actually has uh, a nourishing effect on your soul, even if you believed in Jesus a long time ago. So there's an element of truth to that. But it is still much more likely that the aim of John was evangelistic, meaning that his desire and rationale for writing it, his purpose was that people would come to faith through belief in Jesus through the sufficiency of John's testimony. I mean, that's why the Gospel of John has so often been referred to as God's love letter to the world. Hurting and broken world, take a look in, see this, hear these stories, read this. This is God's love letter to you that you might believe. That's why when people are exploring faith in Jesus and you hand them a Bible, Rather than get them to start in, in, in Genesis or get in the weeds in Leviticus, right? It's just, where, like, hey, start in the Gospel of John. Why? Because, because of the reason he wrote the book, so that people might see him as he is. They might believe in him and have life in his name. Now, John includes the seven signs of Jesus that we just looked at so that his readers, including you and me, would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. This word Christ, so we believe that Jesus is the Christ. What is that? What is, he, what is he after? Christ, Christos in Greek, literally means the anointed one. That's what Messiah means in Hebrew and Aramaic as well, the anointed one. That Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the anointed one. In the Old Testament, prophets, priests, and kings were consecrated and anointed for their office into those roles. But there also was this understanding, this longing and expectation in Israel that a Messiah, a anointed one would come. And John wants to make it clear that Jesus is that Messiah. And the Messiah, not only Israel, but everyone was waiting for. Sinclair Ferguson wrote a great book I found really helpful called Preaching Christ from the Old Testament. Preaching Christ from the Old Testament, this idea that Jesus is everywhere in Scripture, that you can preach Christ from every page of the Bible. And I found it fascinating and I found it wildly helpful. And I want us to see that the whole Old Testament is a lead-up to Jesus Christ. That fulfillment, because of everything in the Old Testament, will land on Jesus Christ. It will become clear that Jesus is the Messiah. So Sinclair Ferguson shows us. Let's take a look in at the Old Testament and see how Jesus is really the point of it all. Jesus is the true and better Adam. Let's start at the beginning. Jesus is the true and better Adam who passed the test in the garden and whose obedience is imputed to us. Where Adam failed... Jesus triumphed. Jesus is the true and better Abel. Abel's brother Cain murdered him because Abel gave a more generous sacrifice to God and Cain was jealous. So Jesus is the true and better Abel who, though innocently slain, has blood now that cries out, not for our condemnation, but for acquittal. Jesus is the true and better Abraham who answered the call of God to leave all the comfortable and familiar and go into the void not knowing whither he went to create a new people of God. Jesus is the true and better Isaac, the son of Abraham, 
who was not just offered up by his Father on the mount, but was truly sacrificed for us. And when God said to Abraham, now I know you love me because you did not withhold your son, your only son whom you love from me, now we can look at God taking his son up the mountain and sacrificing him and say, now we know that you love us because you did not withhold your son, your only son, who you love from us. Jesus is the true and better Jacob who wrestled and took the blow of justice we deserved so we, like Jacob, only receive the wounds of grace to wake us up and discipline us. Jesus is the true and better Joseph who, at the right hand of the king, forgives those who betrayed and sold him and uses his new power to save them. Jesus is the true and better Moses who stands in the gap between people and the Lord and who mediates a new covenant. Jesus is the true and better rock of Moses who, struck with the rod of God's justice, now gives us water in the desert. Jesus is the true and better Job, the truly innocent sufferer who then intercedes for and saves his stupid friends. Jesus is the true and be- Amen. Jesus is the true and better David, whose victory becomes his people's victory, though they never lifted a stone to accomplish it themselves. Jesus is the true and better Esther, who didn't just risk leaving an earthly place, but lost the ultimate and heavenly one, who didn't just risk his life, but gave his life to save his people. Jesus is the true and better Jonah, who was cast out into the storm so that we could be brought in. Jesus is the real rock of Moses, the real Passover lamb, innocent perfect, helpless, slain, so the angel of death will pass over us. He's the true temple, the true prophet, the true priest, the true king, the true sacrifice, the true lamb, the true light, the true bread. The Bible isn't really about any Old Testament heroes. It's about one hero. The Bible isn't really about you and me. It's about him. So that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ the grand subject of Scripture and the great hero of our faith. John has written his gospel so that we might believe that Jesus is that Christ who fulfilled at every turn what the Old Testament had been setting up because God decided to mercifully have grace upon us. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. A few years ago, a movie called The Hurt Locker, I believe, won the Academy Award for Best Picture that year. And it was about an army bomb squad that would dismantle bombs in Iraq. Emily and I got to know some uh, family in our neighborhood, and he used to be a part of the Canadian military, and he actually used to uh, be on a bomb squad in different parts of the world dismantling bombs. And so I thought, hey, like Hollywood sometimes, you know, Wax is eloquent, and it's not really very accurate. So I thought, oh, so did you see the movie, and is it accurate? And he's like, yeah, actually, it's, it's quite accurate. They did a really good job. But, but what we found is, now in the movie, um, they had this bomb suit that the person who was going to dismantle the bomb is wearing this very huge, obviously, protective suit. But he said, you know, realistically, it was so cumbersome, so difficult to actually do the work you were supposed to in the suit. So it was very accurate, except we just didn't wear the suit. Here's the thing about bomb squads. They're unique because they're the only ones going towards the bomb. 
And John wants us to see that Jesus is unique. He's different than everybody else. In this sense, that no ordinary person could do what he did. In this sense, that the, the sum of all the parts that John is writing about in his gospel reveal only one reasonable conclusion. Jesus is the Son of God. Yes, he became flesh. Yes, he took on humanity. But he is God, the Son. See, no ordinary man could do what he did, like perform the signs he performed. His friend passed away. We'd all long to do this, but we can't. Lazarus, come on out. Rise. That's not normal. No ordinary man can reconcile us to God the Father by atoning, paying the price, taking the penalty on himself for our sins. No mere man can do that. It's not normal to be able to conquer death. It's not normal to be able to crush Satan. It's not normal for any ordinary person to be able to bring us to salvation. But Jesus can. I want you to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Finally, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. I have the same desire that John the Gospel writer has. He wrote his gospel, and I've been preaching his gospel, so that you would believe in Jesus and have life in his name. So what does it mean to have life in his name? Well, John has made a compelling case to say that life in his name begins with being born again. He uses that language in John chapter 3 in an exchange, an interaction he has with a man named Nicodemus, where Nicodemus wants to know what it means to be saved, what it means to follow Jesus, what life with God is like, how to enter the kingdom of God. And Jesus responds, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Meaning, apart from Christ, we're spiritually dead, we're lifeless. We need to be born again. There needs to be a new life doing away with the old life. Now, this word born again, I don't know if it's making any of you cringe. It makes some people cringe these days, born again. There are these words that in the culture have, have kind of have these caricatures, like evangelical and born again. Herb Cain, a journalist from San Francisco years ago from the San Francisco Chronicle, wrote, the trouble with born-again Christians is that they're in even bigger pain the second time around. <laughs> Catherine Whitehorn, a British journalist, had much the same, over the pond, had much the same thing to say. Why do born-again people make you wish that they had never been born the first time? <laughs> Half of you are laughing. Don't take yourself so seriously. There's this kind of brand, a born again. Oh, yeah, yeah, they're a Christian. Are they born again? Right? And then when, when the, the culture look in at this idea of born again Christians, they, they're thinking, here's the summary, here's the caricature. Holier than thou. Anti-intellectual, anti-science. Socially offensive. Like, watch weird movies, right? Kirk Cameron movies, even the Nicolas Cage version of the same movies. Like we just watch weird movies, these born-again people. But listen, in the Bible, every Christian is born again. It's a false dichotomy to break it down. Oh, are they born again? 
Look, we can do nominal Christianity or talk cultural Christianity or, yeah, 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 oh, my parents went to this church. I'm a Christian. The Bible is clear that there's only one type of Christian. It's a born-again Christian. It's a person who was dead but is now alive. That's the reference of born again. I, I, I was lost in my sins. I was blind. I could not see. I could not walk. I was hungry. He fed me. He clothed me. He gave me legs to stand on, eyes to see, and actually just rose me from the grave. That's the only kind of Christianity there is. You encounter Jesus, all of that happens or it does not. Born again. And perhaps if all born again Christians were truly born again, maybe the world would be begging for us to be so different the second time around, begging for second time around, born again. Peter grasped this, Jesus' disciple, Peter, and that's why he writes in 1 Peter 1 what it means to be born again and have life in Jesus. I'm going to read a bit of an extended passage here. I just want you to grab what you can about Peter's description about being born again. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him, now you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. The problem of sin, suffering, and death are all dealt with in Jesus. Therefore, the person who receives Jesus is born again to a living hope, suffering accounted for, sin dealt with, death conquered the living hope that Peter is referring to is wrapped up in the resurrection of Jesus, meaning we, if we place our trust in the resurrected Lord, have hope beyond the grave. That you may, have, that you may believe and have life in his name. This new life is a spiritual life that comes through no other way but belief, through faith. John reiterates that we obtain eternal life by faith. What does that look like? C.S. Lewis wrote in The Weight of Glory, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child, he's comparing us to ignorant children who don't get how great the hope is that we have in Christ. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea 
we are far too easily pleased. The gospel of John was written to help us understand that there is a greater pleasure than the mud pies of this world. Drink, sex, ambition, great things, paling in comparison to the glory that is to be revealed in Jesus. It puts it in perspective. There is the offer of a life now and forever with Jesus. John wants to make it clear that if you would believe what he is saying in his gospel, if you would accept that as truth, believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. Uh, there's a certain way you have to try and communicate that, though, today. It's different than years ago. People used to be able to give out tracts, and as they would get the four spiritual laws or things like that, they could read it and be kind of seared to the heart, be like, oh, that hits the problem in my life, smack in the face, and I want to respond. Today, people read those four spiritual laws and they're like, meh, doesn't speak to me. So we have to understand that. We, we, we can't preach and share Jesus kind of the same old way. It's the same message. It's the same gospel. But it has to, follow, has to be communicated in a way that, that today's ears will listen. Uh, Don Carson, D.A. Carson, a Christian theologian, uh, was helpful in this to me when he talked about um, really the faith in our culture today by and large as personal, subjective, religious preference. He would say, if you look out at faith in general in the world, say probably a lot of your coworkers and students you're in school with, people you chat with, neighbors you have, when you start to talk about faith a little bit, you will hear a lot of times it boiled down to personal, subjective, religious preference, right? So there's no urgency in the here. How do you communicate the gospel like that? You encourage people to believe. I preach that people would believe. And what they hear me say, what they hear us say is, take on my subjective religious preference. But that's not what I'm after. I know that's not what you're after when you share your faith. That's certainly not what John the Gospel writer is after when he shares why he has labored over this well-constructed gospel. The purpose is that we would recognize our need and submit our lives to Christ. But often what happens is there's this spiritual vein in us that's kind of like, oh, this might be helpful to my self-betterment, right? To improve my happiness, my, my present circumstances, uh, might give me some more positive energy and thinking, right? Th th this is the way, by and large, that faith is approached today. And yet, I want you to hear that the urgency, urgency of John, I share in that urgency, is to see that what's going on here is so much greater than this. We believe that a judgment is coming where we will stand before a real God who will say, who did you trust in, you or Jesus? And I so desperately want people to know that they can place their trust in Jesus and not worry about that coming day but just live in grateful response to the day he died and rose again to save us from our own peril. But spirituality today, by and large, seems to just offer comfort, bolster self-esteem, help solve problems, help interpersonal relationships by encouraging people to do good, feel good, and keep God in an arm's length. But let me reiterate it. This is not born-again Christianity. It's a spiritual epidemic, yeah, and not just outside of the church, in the church as well. 
So let's talk about what it means to be a follower of Jesus in the midst of a personal, subjective, religious preference society. Earlier this week, um, a gentleman walked into uh, Pastor Jason's office and said, I'd like, to be, I'd like to follow Jesus, but I don't know how. Can you help me? And he got to pray with him to receive Jesus. And we celebrate that. A couple weeks ago at our Agassiz campus on Easter Sunday after the service, a man prayed with Pastor Elton to surrender his life to Christ and become a follower of Jesus. We just sell, that matters. That matters to us. We, 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 we need to respond to the gospel proclaimed. And not just hear it and go, ah, okay, I think I can apply a little bit of that, but to truly believe in Jesus. So what does it mean to become a Christian? How do we do it? Let's look back a few verses, verse 28 of chapter 20, at Thomas's exchange with Jesus. We talked about this last week. And what, what, um, what Thomas had done is he's among some disciples and Jesus isn't there. And he's like, I won't believe in Jesus unless I put my finger in the nail holes, my hand in his pierced side. I will not believe unless, he, unless I do that. Jesus isn't there, but he hears him. He knows that about Thomas. And so he shows up and says, put your finger here and put your hand here. He knows our thoughts. He knows our comments. He knows our prayers. And Thomas, in that context, responds, my Lord and my God. So let's just break that down as we close. The first thing that Thomas does is he answers Jesus. He speaks to Jesus. He replies to Jesus. Thomas didn't only make a statement about Jesus. He spoke to Jesus. To surrender your life to Christ means to come before him and whisper a prayer to him, to him. And then Thomas said, my Lord and my God. What Thomas did there is he didn't just think to himself that Jesus is God or say it to others, but he confessed it to Jesus. You're my Lord. You're my God. The ministry of Jesus can be summarized as Jesus came preaching repentance and faith and making the way for those to be accomplished. So what it means to confess your sin is to come before Jesus and say, hey, I know I have wrongs. I know I've done wrong. I know I have, I'm broken, I'm a mess, I have hurt people, I've sinned against you, God, and it's bringing it to him, confessing those things and asking him because of the blood he shed on the cross to forgive you of those sins. And you actually get to walk away from a prayer like that, not feeling guilty, oh, that stuff I did, but feeling free. The weight is lifted. Jesus paid the price for you. And so we come to Jesus, we confess our sin, and we thank him for the cross. And we proclaim that he is our Lord and our God. We put our faith in Jesus, that we believe that he's the Son of God. Yeah, you are who you say you are, Jesus. I believe it. I'm going to confess my sin. I'm going to thank you for grace. And you can begin the life of following Jesus. The final non-negotiable part in that is to entrust your life to Jesus. My Lord and my God. Lord means master. Thomas, in praying that prayer, is handing over the keys of his life to Jesus. And every one of us needs to do the same. The gospel is a priceless treasure, not a trinket or an accessory. To follow Jesus, then, is to count the cost, and there will be a cost. Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me. That sounds painful at times, but don't be fooled. It is so worth it. And follow me. That's what it means to be born again. So, have you believed 
in Jesus, not simply about Jesus, but in Jesus? Have you confessed him as your Lord and your God, your rescuer and your master? If not, you are, I need to give the warning. If not, you are in this very moment, not under grace through Jesus, but under wrath, condemned. And if you remain in this unrepentant, unconfessed unbelief, you will face the judgment of God rather than the mercy of God through his son, Jesus. That sounds harsh, but the gospel opportunity awaits. And if you have responded to Jesus in faith, you have the blessings of heaven resting upon you. Look to Jesus with me. Thank you for looking to Jesus with me in John's gospel over the course of these many sermons. Look in awe with me at the stunning beauty of the gospel. Turn to Jesus that by believing you may have life in his name. Let me conclude by quoting Leslie Newbegin about these verses who said, to have the faith which is expressed in these words is to have life in his name, the life which is truly his life given to the believer so that it can no longer be identified by any other name than that of Jesus. It is the life which has been described with classic simplicity by St. Paul. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. John has made his record so that the reader may share that life. So what do you say? Are you ready to stop making mud pies in the slum? Eternity awaits. Let's pray. Jesus, I'm so thankful. So, so thankful that you came to save for your ministry to us, for the faithfulness of your disciple, John, who recorded this, that we might have that same life that, you, that Jesus offered as he walked. Thank you, God. Oh, I pray that as a people, we would have life in your name, that we would be born again in the best sense of the word. Oh, Jesus, may that be so. Lord, I pray that you would keep us soft-hearted towards you. There are so many things pulling at us that want to make us bitter, that want to make us hardened, that want to turn our face from you. Oh, Jesus, keep us close. I pray for every person in the room who has never actually said a prayer to you, to start a life of faith in you. Jesus, I pray people would come to repentance and faith today. I pray that that would happen in their lives and that you would satisfy those deep longings as they walk with you through the highs and lows of this life. Jesus, I pray for the established believers in the room. Would we never wander from what's paramount, what's foundational, what's of first importance? And we might believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, we may have life in your name. Pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.